Welcome to How I Wrote This, a show about writers, their books, and the story behind their stories. I'm your host, Pamela Hensley, and in season two, I travel to Berlin. Learn what it's like growing up in a divided city, fleeing the country, living here as a Jewish expat. Join me as I speak to winners and contenders of the German Book Prize, the Thomas Mann Prize, the Dublin Literary Award, and the International Booker. Season two of How I Wrote This begins on April 23rd. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Los Angeles, 1980. David Cronenberg sat in the offices of film producer Carol Bohm. Following the success of Scanners, David had garnered some heat in Hollywood. He had signed with his first American agent, Mike Marcus, and was now taking general meetings with decision makers in town. Bohm had made a name for herself developing movie adaptations of bestsellers for the producer circle. These included films like The Stepford Wives and Stanley Kubrick's upcoming adaptation of the Stephen King novel, The Shining. Wendy. Darling, light of my life. I'm not gonna hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains in. Bohm herself had recently relocated to L.A. to become the studio vice president at Lorimar. She was meeting with David that day because she had a project in mind for him to direct. We're in active development on the screen adaptation of The Dead Zone. Oh. David crossed his legs, taking a more comfortable position in his chair. We have a relationship with Stephen. King, that is. I wanted to get your thoughts on it. But... There's a but, David said with a smile. There's a but, I'm afraid. I found out this morning from a colleague that we already have a director attached to that project. Director in question was Stanley Donan. An odd choice, perhaps, to adapt a Stephen King novel. Donan started his career working with Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly on films like Royal Wedding and Singing in the Rain. He had also made a slate of films with Audrey Hepburn. Do you want to talk about the book anyway? David knew he wasn't going to be able to wrestle a job away from Stanley Donan. Not when stacked against a 30-year career like that. Well, I'm actually not familiar with that book. I can't say I've read it. Carol dropped her shoulders, like an uncoiling spring. They sat there for a moment, not sure where to go from there, until David spoke up. You know, there is a book I read recently that was quite interesting. Have you read Twins? Carol did a quarter turn in her chair to face David straight on. I am fascinated by those two. Twins was the recent fictionalized account of the true story of the Marcus brothers, identical twins, and prominent New York City gynecologists. Carol knew the story because she was living in New York in 1975 when the Marcus brothers were both found dead in a New York apartment. They were both emaciated and surrounded by trash piled two feet high. It turned out that not only had both Carol and David read Twins, but they had also read the New York Magazine article by Linda Wolfe who herself was a one-time patient of Stuart Marcus. Their conversation quickly devolved into David and Carol trading weird details they recalled from that article. Details like 
how the twins would swap places, so patients were never certain whether it was Stuart or Cyril performing their exam, or how one twin was seen taking a hit off a patient's anesthesia while in the middle of a procedure, or how they seemed to be able to communicate with one another wordlessly and across distances, or just how two prominent doctors were able to waste away and die nearly simultaneously from barbiturate withdrawal, and it happened right under the noses of their colleagues in New York high society. David's meeting with Lorimar ended without a job offer, but, David thought, at least he was able to spend a nice afternoon discussing one of his favorite private obsessions. about media, I'm Ryan Barnett, and this is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North, the podcast in which we deep dive into the history behind your favorite CanCon. This is the fifth episode in our series on filmmaker David Cronenberg. In our last episode, David used his art to work through his divorce and custody battle. He released The Brood on an unsuspecting public, and then quickly followed it up with Scanners, his first legitimate hit in America. This is episode five, The New Flesh. Why do you think horror films are so popular? I can't really answer that with a uh, generalization that will hold true. Los Angeles, 1982. David Cronenberg was seated in a television studio. Next to him sat the director of Halloween, John Carpenter. And next to him, John Landis, the director of An American Werewolf in London. The three men were gathered together for a panel discussion on the state of horror films in the 1980s. As was his habit. John Landis, the director of exactly one horror film up to that point, held court for much of the conversation, with Carpenter speaking only when spoken to. And for the most part, Cronenberg was happy to listen. Being based in Canada, it was a treat to sit amongst his Hollywood contemporaries. The host of the program, Mick Garris, turned his attention to David. David, is there anything you think should not be shown in films? If you want to take that as an absolutely blanket general question, no, I don't think there's anything that should not be shown in films. Garris himself would go on from this program to pen several horror films, including a sequel to one of Cronenberg's best-loved films. The Fly 2. Like father, like son. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves... Your films are probably best known, uh, symbolized by the exploding head at the beginning of Scanners. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you feel about that? How, how do I feel that, about it being one of the... The, the symbol of your work. Oh, I think it's very, I think it's very appropriate because uh, an energy in a mind that can't be physically contained is, is, is very appropriate, I think, to, to the way I feel sometimes. For one. <laughs> and um, so on, on, and just in terms of the... the the effectiveness of that effect and the way it worked in the context of the movie, I'd be happy to be known by that for a while anyway, until the next movie. When you talk about censorship, uh, you have to get into the ratings problem. Do you have uh, any particularly strong feelings about the ratings, Boyd? Yes. (laughs) Um, Landis began talking about the hypocrisy of the ratings board, the inconsistency of the rules as they apply to material within a particular film. In his case, 
It was the use of the same X-rated material which went uncensored in the 1970s, but in Reagan's America, was deemed inappropriate for an R rating. See, I had an experience like John's. I was a producer of a film called Halloween 2. Carpenter echoed Landis, pointing out the MPAA's aversion to sex in contrast to its seeming indifference to graphic violence. David, you've also had problems as far as X and R ratings in your film. Scanners was originally an X. Well, every picture that I've done was has originally gotten an X here in the States. But, uh, but you have to understand that I live in Ontario, Canada, which used to be the most <coughs> liberal province and now is the most restrictive. Right. So I have to agree, or, or, or let, let me amplify what John was saying. Uh, when I came down here to, to talk to the MPAA about ratings, it was still a relief compared with what happens in, in Ontario, which is that they take your picture, they take every print, and they cut it, and they hand it back to you, and they say, this is your new movie, they keep the, the pieces that they've taken out, and you go to jail for two years if those are projected. And that's real censorship. At this time, as David was talking about the censors, he was in the process of mounting a film that interrogated the idea of censorship and the very criticisms often lobbed at his own work. It was about the unholy influence of violent and sexual programming. His next project would become the apotheosis of a David Cronenberg film. From Chris Rodley's Cronenberg on Cronenberg. With Videodrome, I wanted to posit the possibility that a man exposed to violent imagery would begin to hallucinate. I wanted to see what it would be like, in fact, if what the censors were saying would happen, did happen. Videodrome began like all other Cronenberg films up to that point, with a last-minute mad dash for tax shelter money. He pitched two ideas to producer Pierre David, with his story entitled Network of Blood winning out. The germ of the idea was rooted in David's late-night television watching as a child. This was long before cable when you had the old antenna that you could rotate. As certain strong stations went off the air, you got weaker signals that had to be formerly masked. Sometimes they were very strange and evocative. Sometimes you were projecting your own meanings on them because you couldn't hear the sound properly. Videodrome follows Max Wren, the president of Civic TV, a trashy UHF station based out of Toronto. Wren's station, very much inspired by Moses Neimer's City TV, made its bones on sensationalistic programming. When Max is shown Videodrome from a pirated signal originating from Malaysia, he is convinced it's the future of television. The program depicts the torture and murder of anonymous victims. Max makes the decision to begin broadcasting the show on Civic TV. He is soon sent down a rabbit hole as he seeks to find the truth about Videodrome. For the character of Brian Oblivion, David looked to famed communications guru and University of Toronto professor Marshall McLuhan. McLuhan had become a famous public intellectual in the 1960s, while treading the same campus as Cronenberg, the English lit major. Many of the ideas posited in Videodrome read like McLuhan. The television screen is the retina of the mind's eye. Therefore, the television screen is part of the physical structure of the brain. Therefore, whatever appears on the television screen emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. Therefore, 
Television is reality, and reality is less than television. Videodrome would be the beneficiary of the success of Scanners. With that juice, the director was able to attract James Woods. David was finally working with a lead actor up to the task of interpreting a Cronenberg protagonist. David himself really sold me on this project. Uh, there was something about, he's so self-effacing in a way. He's a very gentle, kind of kind man. I always said to him, David, I said, are you sure you write this stuff? I said, you know, you look like this guy with, you know, a beautiful wife, two beautiful children, you know, your little home. He races Ferraris, which is, I think, the clue because, you know, underneath this civilized veneer, we have one of the strangest minds I think I've ever encountered. And with the casting of Debbie Harry in a co-starring role, he had a genuine pop star at the height of her fame in his movie. His X-rated script also attracted top talent behind the scenes. Rick Baker, the one-time apprentice of Dick Smith, David's savior on scanners, was the new rock star in special effects makeup, having just won the Academy Award for his groundbreaking werewolf transformation in John Landis's An American Werewolf in London. Baker was attracted to the challenges envisioned in Cronenberg's script. Videodrome is really a strange film, and we have to do some pretty disgusting things in this movie. For example, we have we're doing a makeup effect on a TV set. We have a, a like a change of TV that, that, that becomes flesh and grows veins and, and musculature and moves and undulates and undulates and all kinds of horrible things happen to it. We've never done any any effects quite like we're doing in video drama. I would never censor myself. David would later say in an interview. To censor myself to censor my fantasies, to censor my unconscious, would devalue myself as a filmmaker. It's like telling a surrealist not to dream. While David worked away on filming Videodrome in Toronto, Pierre David was in Hollywood, pounding on doors, trying to make inroads for his company and his filmmaker. One of the doors that he knocked on was that of Tom Mount. Mount was a top executive at Universal Pictures. He began his career working on Alfred Hitchcock's few remaining films like Frenzy and Family Plot. Mount liked the script for Videodrome, but more importantly, he liked the margins on a Cronenberg film. He saw an opportunity to make money. Universal was the home of monsters, after all. So it only seemed right that they would want one of the hottest horror directors as part of their stable of talent. The story goes that when MCA and Universal CEO Sid Sheinberg finally read the script for Videodrome, he raced out of his office asking, is it too late to stop this picture? But Universal was in as a financial partner in the movie. For the first time in his career, David had the backing of a major Hollywood studio. But with that support came something else. The Hollywood test screening. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Boston, 1983. David Cronenberg watched in horror as several mothers brought their toddlers into the movie theater. 
They were there to see a preview screening of his new film, Videodrome. Well, they were there because the movie was free, and the theater was air-conditioned, and their kids were in tow because they had no babysitters. David knew that test screenings were a tough exercise. You were asking the average American to weigh in on a picture of mid-bake. At this point, Videodrome didn't even have a score. Not even a temp track. Huge swaths of the movie fell into complete silence. Silences that would eventually be covered by Howard Shore's haunting score. But for this screening, they were asking this audience to fill in those blanks themselves. As the lights dimmed and the projector started... When it was time to go through the audience questionnaires, well, as Tom Mount put it, well, that was pretty bad. Tom held up one questionnaire he had pulled off the stack. Here, 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 listen to this one. I hated your fucking film. They didn't answer any of the questions, nothing. Just I hated your fucking film. It was brutal. Why were there kids in the theater? David, the kids weren't your problem. They didn't help, but what happened to the film you wrote? David started his defense. We were just trying to streamline the story. To 75 minutes? You streamlined it to the point of incoherence, David. I... But don't worry, we'll show it to Verna. She'll help us out. Verna was Verna Fields, who was, at this point, an executive at Universal, but had made a name for herself as a film editor. She was the mother hen of the Hollywood Brats. As a professor at USC, she had taught John Milius and George Lucas. She had cut Medium Cool for Haskell Wexler, cut three pictures for Peter Bogdanovich, and bailed Steven Spielberg out when Jaws was sinking. If there was someone who could fix Videodrome's story problems, it was Verna. It happens. Come to me. Before your eyes. And inside your head. They can program you. They can play you like a videotape recorder. You let me watch it? Videodrome. First, it controls your mind. Then... It destroys your body. Videodrome, a terrifying new weapon. Rated R. Now playing at Hollywood Pacific and Pacific's Pickwood Theaters. The final released print of the film clocked in at a still brisk 87 minutes. Universal was bullish on the film launching it in 900 theaters in its opening week in February 1983. The film received encouraging notices, with positive reviews and variety in the New York Times. David Kerr of the Chicago Reader wrote, The film remains an audacious attempt to place obsessive personal images before a popular audience, a kind of Kenneth Anger version of Star Wars. But as David would later observe in an interview, marketing Videodrome was tough. It was neither fish nor fowl. Do you market it as a horror picture or an adult sci-fi drama? Ultimately, it didn't reach an audience during its theatrical run. It debuted at number 8, behind Sophie's Choice, then in its ninth week of release. It held on for one more week, dropping to number 15, just behind The House on Sorority Row, and just above They Call Me Bruce. But then, the film quietly ended its run, with a take of just over $2 million. Videodrome wasn't the splash they were hoping for, Fortunately for David, he was already in production on his next movie. Whatever career fallout follows a box office failure would have to skip a turn. I understand the first script was going to be Charles Manson in high school. 
But that didn't pan out too funny, you know. And I could see Los Angeles, 1982. David Cronenberg was in the offices of his friend John Landis. The animal house director was injected with the adrenaline and nervous energy that comes before starting any new project and was nervously talking David's ear off. This is the truth. I mean, uh, the he was about film. to direct his segment of the Twilight Zone movie, an anthology film that would also feature segments from directors Joe Dante, George Miller, and Steven Spielberg. Landis had been on a winning streak with three back-to-back hits, including Animal House, The Blues Brothers, and An American Werewolf in London. Also there that day was Deborah Hill, Deborah had made a name for herself as the producer and co-writer of John Carpenter's seminal slasher film, Halloween. It's hard to overstate the popularity and influence of that one film after its release in 1978, but it made Hill's reputation in town and sparked a franchise that continues today. She was happy to meet David. It was an impromptu meeting, but she had been thinking about him for a project. Hill was currently working with Italian film mogul Dino De Laurentiis. David, what's your next project? He wiped his palm across his brow. The very idea of starting something new was too exhausting to consider. I don't know. He wanted to keep it to himself, but the well was dry. Videodrome wasn't an easy shoot. Moreover, it felt to David like the culmination of a lot of ideas he'd been exploring in his earlier films. To write another script right then, well, it felt impossible. Well, I'm developing something right now, and I thought about you. Would you ever consider directing The Dead Zone for us? Yes. The word left his lips, even before the idea formed in his head. David was frankly surprised by his own response. Yes? Yes. Of course, I would love to. But would he really? David always thought of himself as a writer-director, an auteur in the cahier de cinema sense. What would directing The Dead Zone mean for his body of work? Or his career, for that matter? When David signed on to direct the film, he was given five scripts from five different writers all of whom were attached to develop the film at one point or another. One of those drafts was written by the author himself. Stephen King's own script was terrible. David would later say in an interview. It was basically a really ugly, unpleasant slasher script. It was the kind of script his fans would have torn me apart for doing. They would have seen me as the one who destroyed his work. This was still early days for adaptations of King's work. Up to that point, only Carrie and The Shining had been released, two masterpieces from American auteurs. The cottage industry of Stephen King films was about to kick off in a big way, though. 1983 would see the release of Cujo, directed by Louis Teague, and Christine, directed by John Carpenter. 84 and 85 would add another half-dozen titles to that list. Of the five scripts that Deborah Hill had given him, David gravitated to one written by Jeffrey Bohm back in 1980. It was a remnant of the film's development at Lorimar when Stanley Donan was meant to direct. Bohm had come from working in film distribution at 20th Century Fox. He moved into screenwriting when he was hired to perform a rewrite on Straight Time, the film that was supposed to be Dustin Hoffman's directorial debut. In 1979, Carol Bohm hired him to work on The Dead Zone. It was just his second Hollywood writing job. He would go on to have a stellar 80s, pending the Chevy Chase comedy Funny Farm, as well as Inner Space, Lethal Weapon 2, and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. The Dead Zone is the story of Johnny Smith, a school teacher who, after nearly dying in a car crash, wakes up to find he possesses new psychic powers. Touch this man's hand, and you are in the grip of the Dead Zone. I've had another episode. Only the imagination of author Stephen King could take you there. 
with a power that alters the future lives of those you love. You want to kill your own son? I want you out of here. I'm scared, Dad. Or of those you fear. I have had a vision that I am going to be president of the United States someday, and nobody, I mean nobody, going to stop me. Is it a power for good or for evil? If God has seen fit to bless you with this gift, you should use it. Bless me? You're a devil. I saw his face. I stood there. I did nothing. Johnny! It was Jeffrey Bohm who developed the episodic structure of the script. He described it as a triptych. It plays like the continuing adventures of Johnny Smith. Cronenberg's contribution was to make Johnny's psychic visions personal. And my concept of how his visions should be conveyed on the screen was that they should be also totally real, physically real, and that in fact they were so real that in some of his visions he would actually physically be within his own visions. He would be present in his visions. And to me that was the most powerful cinematic way to portray the, the impact of these visions on him. The, 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 because in the script, the story demands that these, uh, these visions be physically exhausting and emotionally draining. And I thought that if it, you just played it as though it was something that he was seeing on television or a newsreel running in his head, uh, that, that really wouldn't convey that at all. You could do that in a novel, but it wouldn't work for the screen. Shooting for the Dead Zone began on location in Niagara-on-the-Lake, Canada in January 1983. Very little changed for David Cronenberg. He was still working with his regular team that had been with him since Fast Company, including DOP Mark Irwin, editor Ronald Sanders, and production designer Carol Spear. But this was his first film made without Canadian financing. He was no longer hemmed in by the restrictive parameters of CanCon. This meant that he didn't have to stunt cast a British legend to lend credibility to his all-Canadian cast. Instead, he was working with Martin Sheen, Tom Skerritt, and Christopher Walken, who was just a few years off of his Oscar-winning performance in The Deer Hunter. However, this didn't mean David turned his nose up at homegrown talent. Supporting roles in The Dead Zone are populated by a who's who of Canadian actors, including Nicholas Campbell as the Castle Rock Killer, and Jackie Burroughs, a.k.a. Aunt Hetty from Road to Avonlea. You're up and about early this morning, Sarah Stanley. She, despite only being four years older than Walken, plays his mother in the film, Perhaps strangest of all is seeing Colleen Dewhurst, the definitive Marilla Cuthbert from the Anne of Green Gables miniseries, get gunned down in a stairwell. At the time of filming, Niagara-on-the-Lake was experiencing a deep freeze. Shooting on location was a frozen hell, or as Deborah Hill once put it. When you shoot on location, especially something like a cold location, the uh, actor doesn't have to get geared up for all the artificial environment that one may encounter when they're on a Hollywood set. Um, perfect example is the cold breath that one sees in, in throughout the dead zone because it is cold there. Uh, had we shot that on a Hollywood soundstage, we would have had to air condition the stage and bring the temperature way down. So the actors, when they're on location and they're dealing with a certain sense of reality and a big scope, they don't have to put up with so much of the Hollywood artificiality. After the first week of shooting, 
David got a call from Dino De Laurentiis. David, you're shooting too much film. Are you burning my money up there just to stay warm? I know, Dino, but it's just the first few days. I'm getting to know the actors, they're getting to know me. We're bound to shoot more this early on. We're feeling our way through it. <laughs> no, Ingmar Bergman said the same thing to me. Tighten it up, yes? David wrapped a wool scarf around his neck and pulled the toque down over his ears. You know, Dino's been known to fire directors for overspending. Deborah warned him. Good. Get me the hell out of here. And with that, David swung open the door to the AD trailer and stepped back into the minus 30 degree night, ready to shoot his next scene. The Dead Zone is another psychic thriller about a person with second sight, the ability to sense the past or the future. Ho-hum, right? Well, wrong. The Dead Zone is something special because it contains a superb performance by Christopher Walken. It's one of the best performances I've seen in a year, and that's from Mr. Intellectual here. I'm not so heartless. <clears throat> well, wait, I hear from Mr. Emotional because I think I liked it even more than you did, and for the same reason, basically. And a lot of these, I guess you'd call them science fiction. Or the Dead Zone opened in October 1983, finishing second at the box office, just behind Never Say Never Again, Sean Connery's latter-day return to the role of James Bond. It would go on to cross $21 million dollars, 10 times the take of Videodrome just eight months earlier, making it not just Cronenberg's most successful film up to that point, but 40 years later, it remains one of his biggest hits. The success of The Dead Zone pulled David close into the orbit of Dino De Laurentiis. De Laurentiis was a legendary Italian producer. In 1954, he earned the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film with La Strada, the very film that inspired David as a boy. In the 1960s, De Laurentiis moved from prestige pictures to epics, films like The Bible and Waterloo. In the 1970s and 80s, he was making popcorn movies, like the big-budget remake of King Kong and Flash Gordon and Conan the Barbarian. Conan! What is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentation of your women. That is good. That is good. De Laurentiis had a project that had been languishing in development hell for years. He thought David might be the right director to bring it to the screen. We Can Remember It For You Wholesale was a short story written by science fiction writer Philip K. Dick. It was first optioned by producer Ronald Shusett, who worked with Dan O'Bannon to expand the story into a screenplay for a feature film they titled Total Recall. Thought to be too ambitious and expensive to make in the late 1970s, the pair moved on to collaborate on the script for Alien. De Laurentiis acquired the project in 1982, with Shusit still attached to produce. Offered the opportunity to write his own script for Total Recall, David signed on to the project. It was to be just one of two big-budget sci-fi pictures that De Laurentiis was making with an idiosyncratic auteur. If all went according to plan, Cronenberg's film would be the second half of a one-two punch as the De Laurentiis group chased that prized Star Wars box office. Total Recall would be the spiritual successor to the hotly anticipated $40 million adaptation of Frank Herbert's novel Dune, currently in production and directed by David Lynch. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North is written and produced by me, Ryan Barnett, and presented by Knockabout Media. It's co-produced by Sonia Jamidi, with additional voices by Matt Barnett and Sonia Jamidi. This was Episode 5, The New Flesh. In our next episode, we conclude our series on David Cronenberg with Twin Projects. If you like this podcast, tell a friend, follow us, rate us, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This really helps the podcast get noticed. Special archival audio comes courtesy of Retro Ontario. If you want more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at It's Ryan Barnett. Thanks for listening, and until next time. Help me. Please. Please help me. I'm not about the media original.